Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Thursday, July 1st, 2010. Preparing for the 4th of July holiday weekend. We're going to do Friday Light today. My schedule has uh, made that necessary. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Today is, uh, well, it's kind of getaway day for me. I'm going to be enjoying uh, some time with my family during the 4th of July holiday weekend. And so this will be our last broadcast day of this week, at least as far as our, uh, our you know, new programs uh, for Fighting for the Faith. And uh, tomorrow will be a best of edition of Fighting for the Faith. And since uh, it's been, a, well, I don't know, did I do a Friday light last week? I don't think I did. Uh, we're going to do a Friday light today. And uh, today's Friday Light Edition is a lecture recently delivered by uh, Dr. Michael Horton. And the name of his uh, lecture is, Is the Doctrine of Inerrancy Defensible? And this is, again, from the uh, 2010 National Conference, uh, Ligonier Conference. It's a fantastic lecture. I hope you enjoy it. I find uh, what Dr. Horton here argues to be, uh, he argues it very well, and he makes a great and compelling case. He almost sounds Lutheran. Yeah, don't don't tell him I said that though. I'll, I'll deny it. <laughs> anyway, without any further ado, here is uh, Dr. Michael Horton on "Is the Doctrine of Inerrancy Defensible?" Chemicals uh, and inerrancy. Um, there is a resurgence, as you know, of uh, commitment to inerrancy among a lot of young Christians, especially in the young Calvinist movement, as it's being called. Uh, young, restless, and reformed, and that's very encouraging. But there are also signs that uh, there is a, a generation that knew not the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, that Dr. Sproul and uh, Dr. MacArthur and others were a part of uh, so many years ago. I remember uh, when I was a teenager, I went to one of those congresses, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, and I was wrestling with some of these questions myself. And I wasn't, I, I, I was raised in a very conservative evangelical background 
but I've always had a kind of uh, restless, inquisitive spirit and didn't want to just take things whole as they had been uh, taught to me without asking some questions and becoming convinced in my own mind. And so I wrestled with inerrancy uh, and at that meeting, in fact, had the privilege of uh, taking uh, a certain uh, great man aside who was willing to uh, answer my questions, Harold Linzel, the author of The Battle for the Bible. And he, he was willing to take this, this, this kid uh, uh, from, from California aside and explain what the doctrine of inerrancy was. I'm not sure I had a really good idea of what it was, and so what I was questioning was in many respects something that inerrancy, the doctrine of inerrancy, really wasn't. I think that a lot of younger Christians, especially right now, are struggling with inerrancy for a lot of the same reasons that their parents and grandparents may have struggled with it. First of all, we've had three centuries of rationalistic criticism of the supernatural. Now, obviously, uh, if we're going to have a word from God given to us in history, you have to be open at least to the plausibility of a supernatural worldview. You can't say that miracles never happen and yet believe that God has spoken, has broken into our world to speak to us in our history. We've had three centuries of a presupposition that says, out of the gate, without any investigation, without any criticism or questioning, says out of the gate that things happen purely according to natural processes. God doesn't speak and God doesn't act in history. He may have created the world. He may have wound up the clock, but he doesn't get involved now that things are running along marvelously. God doesn't speak to us either in judgment that would terrify us, as Israel was terrified when God spoke at Mount Sinai. Nor does he speak to us the good news of salvation, because we don't need to be saved. And so there's this intricate, uh, integral relationship between Pelagianism, the belief that we can save ourselves... And naturalism, the belief that we don't need to hear from a God outside of ourselves. And that's what we've seen for the last three centuries, three and a half centuries, with the rise of the Enlightenment, where spirit and letter were set in opposition. This was already clear in some of the mystical sects of the Middle Ages. It was very clear in the radical Anabaptist movement, where leaders like Thomas Munzer Says, said that uh, Luther just preaches the external word that merely beats the air, but we have that inborn spiritual word in our hearts. And so the external word of Scripture and the internal word of the Spirit speaking directly in our hearts became a hallmark of Western consciousness. It was picked up by the rationalists and secularized by people like Lessing and Kant and others who said that... Uh, we have an inner morality that we turn to. We can trust that reason within us. We don't need a word outside of us. We do not need a God, an external God, outside of our own hearts or our own minds or our own experiences to tell us who we are, where we are, 
what our problem is and what he has done to solve it. Immanuel Kant, one of the great leaders of the Enlightenment, said, The concept of God and even the conviction of his existence can be met only in reason, and it cannot first come to us either through inspiration or through tidings communicated to us, however great the authority behind them. He went on to say that the two things we can be convinced of most certainly are the starry heavens above and the moral law within. But of course this means that human existence is totally self-enclosed, like the roof over this building. There's nothing above us. There's no one to tell us how he made us, why he made us, what his purpose is for our life, and how we stand before him in the light of that purpose and what he has done to save us. We're closed up in ourselves. In brief, said Kant, we seek moral imperatives. In brief, I am only interested in what is incumbent upon me, clearly distinguished from what God does for me. Hence, nothing new is imposed by the gospel upon me. Rather, whatever the state of those reports, new strength and confidence is merely given to my already good dispositions. And so, one of the real reasons why I think we've struggled with this, from Immanuel Kant to Oprah, is that we don't allow anything from outside of our own narrow experience and reason to interrupt us. Christianity is a rational faith, not rationalistic, but rational. There is no doctrine, great doctrine in the Christian faith that isn't a mystery, that doesn't transcend our reason. But there is no doctrine in Christianity that is against reason itself. But rationalism is itself against reason, because it presupposes a world that doesn't exist before it even investigates that world. Unwilling to be judged by God's external law, many of our contemporaries are unwilling to be saved by God's external gospel. But I bring along a quote that I was reading on the plane from Oscar Wilde, that great theologian. Uh, the turn of the 20th century who said morality does not help me I am a born antinomian I am one of those made for exceptions not for laws but while I see that there is nothing wrong in what one does there is something wrong in what one becomes religion does not help me the faith that others give to what is unseen I give to what I can touch and look at I would like to found an order for those who cannot believe, the confraternity of the fatherless. Everything to be true must become a religion, whether it be faith or agnosticism, it must be nothing external to me. Its symbols must be of my own creating. If I may not find its secret within myself, I shall not ever find it. If I have not got it already, it will never come to me. So in one sense, the modern age has been very rationalistic, just the facts, ma'am. And on the other hand, very mystical. When it comes to finding ultimate meaning in life, they realize they can't find ultimate meaning in science and reason. And so they turn inward 
as C.S. Lewis said, uh, they'd sort of become scientist magicians, going to the lab and thinking critically as scientists and then going home and playing with their Ouija boards. There's a schizophrenia in our culture that is very much a part of our problem with an external authority. Also, there have been scuffles with science. We're all familiar with these scuffles, and we'll be hearing more about them during this conference. The Reformation contributed mightily to the rise of modern science in many ways. But there's the history, especially in the medieval church, of Copernicus and Galileo that still haunts us to this very day. Today, science and orthodox faith are polarized as never before. Scientists often go beyond the methods, sources, and criteria of their own field in order to pronounce on philosophical and metaphysical questions. While sometimes Christian theologians transgress the boundaries of the faithful interpretation of Scripture and adopt extra-biblical theories, and what happens in the process is very often you have young people going off to college as a result, not knowing what they believe or why they believe it, and they get caught in this crossfire between science and faith. Thirdly, there are genuine discrepancies. After three centuries of relentless criticism, we can say there are genuine discrepancies. Now, discrepancies are not errors. Discrepancies are problems that we haven't solved in our exegesis. Not problems with the text, they're problems with us, but there are genuine discrepancies. But it's not as if this was shown for the first time in the Enlightenment. If you le read John Calvin's commentaries, or you, you go back to John Chrysostom, for that matter, or Augustine, you see that they point out discrepancies. But as in any science, you don't throw a whole paradigm that is stable and accounts for the greatest amount of data overboard simply because you can't explain Anomalous data. And if that's true in the sciences generally, it's certainly true when we come to the question of the inerrancy of Scripture. Marvelously, we heard the gospel explained again this evening. For the Protestant reformers, the defense of Scripture, they agreed with Rome on the inerrancy of Scripture. Rome has, down to the Second Vatican Council, affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture, at least officially. The, the, pro, the, the reason the reformers were so insistent on sola scriptura was not because they had a sort of uh, Islamic attach, att attachment to a book. It was because they knew that in that book, God had spoken to us outside of our experience, outside of our reason, outside of what we ever could have known for ourselves and delivered the only hope for our salvation and the salvation of the world. And so the gospel itself was bound up with scripture. It is because of everything that we heard from Dr. MacArthur tonight that I defend the inerrancy of scripture. It is, it is because about the battle for the, for the Bible is always simultaneously a battle for the gospel. The apostle Paul tells us famously in 2 Timothy... Chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The first thing that we need to look at here in this definition of the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture is God's own testimony to his word in Scripture, the Bible's testimony to itself. The Bible is a canon, coming from the Greek word kanon, which means rule. It's sort of similar to a constitution. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, the world of political treaties from which our covenantal analogies in Scripture come, in that ancient Near Eastern world, a great king would liberate a lesser people from tyrants and then annex that lesser people to himself. Okay, listen carefully to this. Dr. Horton has just said the Bible in many ways is like a constitution. Listen to his case here. And so his word had both liberating power and when he gave them the treaty, binding, regulating power. And it's no different between Yahweh and his people. God is the great king, greater than all kings of the earth. And God has annexed us. He has chosen us, redeemed us, called him, uh, us to himself, liberating us from lords that cannot save. And so God's word not only saves, it rules. It's not only the word of liberation that saves us from our enemies, it is also that constitution by which the people of God are bound and by which his church is regulated. Nothing added, nothing subtracted on penalty of death. And there's a line in a lot of these ancient Near Eastern treaties of Israel's neighbors. With these political arrangements, the treaty often had a clause saying, Whoever adds to or takes away from the words of this treaty, X, Y, and Z will happen to him. And usually it was death, only death uh, explained in gruesome detail. And we find exactly the same formula in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we uh, read that uh, death will come to anyone who adds to the words of this law or takes away from the words of this law. And in the last book of the Bible, it ends the same way. Whoever adds to or takes away from the words of this prophecy, his name will be taken away from the book of life. That's what it means to have a canon. But how can we embrace the Christian canon over other supposed canons? For instance, the Quran. What distinguishes the Bible? Scripture, of course, is self-authenticating. That means that as we read the Bible... We hear God speak to us. And you don't need to know the arguments for how that happens to really hear God speak through his word. You don't have to become an apologist. You don't have to know all of the... You'll be able to defend it to all detractors. The word of God speaks for itself because in that word we have God 
himself addressing us through the lips of his ambassadors. And yet, we need to be prepared always to give a defense for the hope that we have. And also to help Christians struggling with questions like inerrancy to to think through the internal and external evidence for the faithfulness of God speaking in his word. The best way to do this is to start with Jesus. Jesus declared and eyewitnesses confirmed that he was the promised Messiah. That was his message concerning himself. He's the son of God and the son of David who was sent to deliver us from our sins. That's the main message and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he explained that he had come to die on the cross and to be raised three days later. Okay, so we start with the message of Jesus. Who did Jesus believe he was? And what did Jesus believe he had come to do? And then the second question to ask is, did he do that? <laughs> was he successful? Did he accomplish everything that he promised? And when we look at that, we, we say, see great evidence, internal and external, for the resurrection of Christ. Those with the means, the motive, and the opportunity to disprove the resurrection of Jesus fail to do so. They failed to come up with evidence. In fact, the, the uh, ancient rabbinical sources, the rabbis of Jesus' day, said that he was born illegitimately and probably demon-possessed because he performed signs and wonders and led our people astray by the work of, the, of, of, of Satan. Confirming, therefore, that he was performing signs and wonders and confirming the report that uh, 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 the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy uh, uh, against the Holy Spirit, is to say that Jesus was performing these miracles not by the Holy Spirit, but by the power of Satan. They offered implausible arguments about the disciples having stolen Jesus' body, proving once again <laughs> that the body wasn't there. You almost think that sort of 20, hindsight is twenty twenty, but you almost think that if you were a later Jewish apologist, you'd want to say, why couldn't anybody shut up? Were they talking so much? Why were they, why were they going after the Christians so much? Every time they attacked these claims that swirled around Jesus, they substantiated many of those claims as hostile witnesses. Roman and Jewish historians both confirmed that a great dissension erupted in Jerusalem over the whereabouts of Jesus' body and over the immediate rise. This wasn't a, a slowly evolving myth. Over the immediate rise of disciples of Christ who proclaimed his resurrection on penalty of death. And none of the disciples showed themselves to be in any mood for martyrdom. They fled the scene leaving the women <laughs> to, to be to, to uh, sort of fend, fend for themselves. The, the men fled. Peter denied Jesus three times. Where do we learn about this? In the Bible itself. If you started a new religion, would you represent yourself and your buddies that way? No, the New Testament is telling us warts and all what happened because... It was great enough, whatever it was, it was great enough to bring them out into the light of day and proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, even though they knew that they would be martyred for 
that claim. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. The person who wrote that, the Apostle Paul, was commissioned by this risen Christ. And the other apostles were commissioned directly by Jesus Christ. They had to be eyewitnesses. And so what we have now in the New Testament is a canon composed through human agency with the criteria of their being eyewitnesses and commissioned directly by Jesus Christ for this purpose. Let me just say a, a word about Trinitarian cooperation in inspiration. The, the cooperation of the persons of the Trinity is very important here. Every work that the Godhead does is done from the Father, in the Son, through the Spirit. Whether it's creation, whether it is uh, the exodus and the conquest, or whether it's the life and ministry and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing is done by the Father without the Son and the Spirit. Nothing is done by the Son without the Father and the Spirit. Nothing is done by the Spirit without the Father and the Son. They co cooperate in every work, and that is true of inspiration as well. If we just have a doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy that focuses on the Father's speaking, it's inerrant and infallible because God said it, I believe it, that settles it. We do not yet have a sufficiently Christian doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy. But some people say, no, it should focus on Christ. Christ is the content, the substance of Scripture. And this often leads to a canon within a canon approach. That is, whatever preaches Christ, in other words, whatever I think preaches Christ, is inerrant. And everything around it might be full of errors, but at least that is true, at least the gospel is true. And then some people take the Holy Spirit and separate the Holy Spirit from the Word so that you hear things like, what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today is just as important as what he said to the prophets and the apostles. What we have to do is recognize that in the work of inspiration, the Father is speaking, the Son is the content, and the Holy Spirit is the one who both inspires the text and illumines our hearts to embrace it. In 2 Corinthians 1, the Father is the faithful promise maker, and we read, all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Yet, Paul adds, we can only utter our amen to God for his glory because he has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in cooperation. You can, uh, other passages, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17 that I just read, uh, also makes that point very well. The Father is mentioned, the Son is mentioned, and the Spirit is mentioned. But when you go back and read the creation account, one of the things that has really uh, stood out to me in, in recent years is the uh, the way you have there in the creation account two forms of God's creative work. The first is ex nihilo, bringing the world out of nothing. Let there be, 
And there was. That's the formula that we're familiar with. But in those, those same passages, you have reference to God saying, let the earth bring forth, and the earth brought forth. Now, here's the thing. Liberals and fundamentalists often sound alike in their presupposition that to the extent something is from God, it is not through human agency. This is something that we have to really work through because hyper-supernaturalism and naturalism are kissing cousins. The first thing we have to see here is because it's Trinitarian, the Father working in the Son, by the Spirit, both declaring, let there be, and there was, but also through the work of the Holy Spirit saying, let the earth bring forth. God used the natural capacities of the prophets and the apostles to bring forth that which he had foreordained from the foundation of the world. To delineate this a little bit more, what I'd like to do in the time remaining is look very briefly at a, a book that I think uh, remains probably the best book on this subject. I okay, I'm going to pause right there. And uh, we'll come back after we pay a couple of bills here at Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me, my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Reaching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God and your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel. You see, it takes more than belief. It takes more than faith to really please God. Then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, and your pastor cares nothing about you personally. We have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable. And then you might need a new church. If your church's praise band plays songs that worship you rather than God, your pastor always preaches the law but never the gospel, your pastor cares nothing about you personally, and Jesus and the Bible only make cameo appearances during the sermon. 
I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. Then you definitely need to find a real church. This has been a public service announcement from Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Are you tired of giving gifts that are as boring as elevator music? I mean, how many ties and dust-collecting paperweights does a person need? Well, Pirate Christian Radio has the perfect solution to boring gifts. The answer is Cloud9 Living. Cloud9 Living offers more than 1,600 unique and memorable experience gifts in 42 cities nationwide. Gifts such as hot air balloon rides, dinner cruises, stock car racing, skydiving, and combat aircraft dogfighting. Cloud9 Living has gifts for every taste and every budget. For more information on Cloud9 Living, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cloud9. You'll be glad that you did. Warning, it's the gospel that's always at stake in the argument for biblical inerrancy. Yeah, that's always what's at stake. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join, excuse me, join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to send in your contribution or specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. 
All right, we're going to continue with this great lecture by uh, Dr. Mike Horton on the topic of biblical inerrancy. Here again is Dr. Horton. I think present company uh, uh, excluded. Uh, I, I think that probably Dr. Sproul and others here would attest that B.B. Warfield and A.A. Hodge, their book Inspiration, remains untouched. Their, their arguments have yet to be answered by critics. And so I want to mention their points very briefly because I don't think anything here has changed yet. First, they point out that the rejection of inerrancy, which means that the Bible it does not err in all that it affirms, in the original autographs, they point out that the rejection of inerrancy is typically founded ultimately on a false view of God's relation to the world. Exactly what I was talking about earlier. In other words, either miracles cannot happen, or whenever God acts, it always has to be miraculous. Here again, the fundamentalists and liberals often play off against each other. If it's going to be an act of God, to that extent, it can't come through human agency. You have to deny the human aspect. And yet these authors say, biblical inspiration not only includes the untrammeled play of all the author's faculties, but involves the very substance of what they write. It's not just how they write it, it's what they write that is human. It is evidently, for the most part, the product of their own mental and spiritual activities. The writers say God's superintendence does not compromise creaturely freedom. And I, I have to make this little digression. We have wonderful agreement with lots of brothers and sisters who are not Calvinists. On the doctrine of inerrancy, we have lots of agreement. But really what, what Warfield and Hodge are saying here is you have to have something like a Calvinistic view of providence, the relationship between God's activity and human activity in order for this to make any sense. In the Arminian view, and I could also say a hyper-Calvinistic view, you, you have freedom as sort of a pie. I call it the freedom pie. And in this freedom pie, you, you cut it according to the party you think has the most freedom. And so God may have three-quarters of the pie if you're a hyper-Calvinist. And it might be just reversed for the Arminian. But the point is, there's one pie to be rationed between two people. But the Apostle Paul tells us, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. It's not that there's one freedom pie that God is one person like us. But rather, the, God's pie is the original of which ours is a copy. Our freedom is never divine freedom. It's always creaturely freedom. But precisely because God gives it to us by analogy, we really do have freedom. This means that it is not the case that to the extent that God does something, creatures don't do something. Rather, it is precisely because of God's sovereign freedom that human freedom is even possible in the first place. God has no trouble, therefore, producing a Bible that is without errors, without interrupting or taking away human freedom. 
There's this assumption that human freedom implies error. To err is human. And that's not the case at all. Of course, Jesus Christ was without sin and yet tempted in all respects as we are. If we believe that he was truly human, yet without sin, we can believe that the Bible is truly human, yet without error. Second, Warfield and Hodge underscore the redemptive historical unfolding of biblical revelation. In other words, the Bible didn't fall down from heaven. It's not like Muhammad receiving the Quran, supposedly, as it sort of dropped down from Allah to Muhammad. It's not a collection of eternal, timeless thoughts and principles. It is a story. It's a narrative that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. And so that which is less clearly revealed in the Old Testament is more clearly revealed in the New Testament. 1,200 years of this organic, you know, like a plant, organic development is what produced our Bible. That's what we have in the Old and New Testaments. A canon that has grown through the centuries through the superintending work of the Spirit working through creaturely means. Therefore, say the authors, theories concerning authors, dates, sources, and modes of composition that are not plainly inconsistent with the testimony of Christ or his apostles as to the Old Testament or with the apostolic origin of the books of the New Testament cannot in the least invalidate the Bible's inspiration and inerrancy. Those questions are open. They're questions about the humanness of the books. The humanness of the Bible, whenever we come, we bump into the obvious humanness of the Bible, that shouldn't diminish our confidence in its divinity, its divine source. Rather, it should strengthen it. That in all of its humanity, in all of its diversity, in all of the plurality of witnesses and voices, clearly there is one voice behind it all that brings it together. In Scripture, no less than in history itself. Third, these Princeton theologians faced squarely the question of contradictions and errors. They, they noted problems in great detail. Some discrepancies are due to imperfect copies, which textual criticism properly considers. Uh, other discrepancies may be due to an original reading that has been lost. Or we may simply fail to have adequate data or be blinded by our own presuppositions from understanding a given text. They say, sometimes we are destitute of the circumstantial knowledge which would fill up and harmonize the record, as is true in any historical record. But you don't have historians running off and saying, the Battle of Waterloo never happened because there are things we can't explain. The record itself, they say, furnishes evidence that the writers were in large measure dependent for their knowledge upon sources and methods in themselves fallible. Peter himself uh, says uh, that the prophets were diligently searching out and inquiring as they were writing their prophecies what this might mean. They weren't uh, Nostradamus, you know, walking around with... Wait a second. Wait, I'm receiving a word of knowledge here. I, I see into the future. No, they, God gave them audible ver verbal words in those cases of thus saith the Lord. Analogous to let there be, and there was. And in other cases, left them to their free untrammeled play of their faculties 
and in, in his sovereignty determined that what they said would be an inspired record of what he wanted for future generations to be recorded. Fifth, the claim of inerrancy is that in all their real affirmations, these books are without error. Now, that's a very important... You know, every, every sentence here, every thesis of Hodge and Warfield was carefully selected, and every word in it is very important. The claim of inerrancy is that in all their real affirmations, these books are without error. Now, there are many things in the Bible that are not real affirmations, but are assumptions on the part of the writer. A reductionistic view of language would only lead us to reject the inerrancy and trustworthiness of the Bible because we couldn't reconcile it, for example, the, the cosmology of the psalmist with, uh, with Einstein. Be ridiculous. As John Calvin said, you know, you, uh, uh, Moses was not an astronomer. He wasn't doing astronomy. He was giving us God's inspired, infallible record of his covenant relationship with his people and his sovereignty over the whole earth. Whatever the scriptures teach is inerrant. But we have to ask, what is their purpose? Are these, are, what, what is being really affirmed in certain passages? Some critics have said, look, the psalmist says uh, that the, the, the world rests on four pillars. What, a, what an antiquated worldview. As if they'd never read poetry before. It may well be that the psalmist assumed a cosmology or a, or a worldview that was unknown, unknown until modern science. That may be. But what was he affirming? What is the real affirmation there of the psalmist? Especially when it's in the form of poetry. He didn't believe that God had feathers, and yet he spoke of God as having feathers. We have to be very careful that we don't hand liberals the fodder. A classic example that is often quoted is Matthew 13. 32, where Jesus says uh, that uh, the mustard seed is the smallest seed. I can't tell you how many well-educated scholars who used to believe in inerrancy and now they don't founder on this passage. And I, I, I shake my head. I say, okay, I can hear all kinds of different reasons, but this one is a little baffling. Of course the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. In all the world. We know what the smallest seed in all the world is. And it's not that one. But two things we can say by way of response is that first of all. Jesus didn't necessarily know what the smallest seed was in the world. In his state of humiliation. He didn't know the time or the hour of his return. Only my father in heaven. In his state of humiliation. Uh, Jesus Christ was faithfully telling what he had been delivered from the Father. All of this, he says, I received from my Father in heaven. And so Jesus was speaking to them in a way that they would have understood out of a world, out of a place and time that he belonged to very much as a first century Jew. Imagine what, he would, have said, what would have happened if he had said, the kingdom of God is, is like... 
a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the, well, now wait a second. Now, not, it's not literally the smallest seed in the world. Uh, actually, it's a Southeast Asian poppy seed, but never mind. <laughs> it just wouldn't have made any sense. What is really being affirmed in this passage? What's really being affirmed is the smallest seed you have any awareness of, any experience of in your daily life. Yeah, the kingdom of God starts out like that and it gets real big. What is really being affirmed? Inerrancy requires our confidence not in the exactitude of biblical statements, but in the reliability of biblical statements. What is affirmed is reliable, not necessarily exhaustive. The critics often also point out that if you follow the chronologies in the, uh, uh, in the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, you arrive uh, at, at uh, as Archbishop Usher did in the 17th century, uh, that uh, the world was created Sunday, October 23rd, 4004 B.C., Well, if that's disproved, then the Bible, therefore, unravels. And we can no longer trust in its authority. But no, now we, we know that how chronologies work. Chronologies are not like the United States Census Report. Chronologies in the ancient world highlighted the significant people in dynasties. You go to, from George Washington and skip to Abraham Lincoln. You wouldn't go from George Washington to his children and his children's children and so forth. And the same is true in Matthew's genealogy. Once again, it's a question of the scope. What is being claimed in each passage? As Warfield explains, it is true. The scriptures were not designed to teach philosophy, science, or ethnology, or human history as such, and therefore they are not to be studied primarily as sources of information on these subjects. Not because they're unreliable, because they don't address it. That's not their purpose. That's not their scope. A final point is an appeal to the inerrancy of the original autographs. Now, this is kind of the Achilles heel. Our critics will say, what sense does it make? When's, what museum can I go to? Does the British Museum have a copy of the original autographs? If so, then we can talk about whether they're inerrant or not inerrant. But you guys keep talking about the inerrancy of the original autographs. We're clearly not saying that this is inerrant. Textual criticism is always going through and showing well, you know, uh, after, more, after more careful research, more careful study, it is possible that the ending of the Lord's Prayer isn't actually in the best manuscripts. But that just proves that we actually have a book worth studying like that. For centuries, it keeps yielding that kind of fruitfulness. And because not much has changed through textual criticism... Nothing touching any major point of doctrine. We can be convinced that as it is now, the conclusions that have been reached are pretty devastating to higher critics. It's really important for us to realize that the nature of God, not only the gospel, but the nature of God is implicated in this whole question of inerrancy. And that's what I'm going to, to close with here. I mentioned that the Reformers bound their understanding of Scripture, the importance of 
the nature of Scripture with the content, the gospel itself. Whatever the holy, unerring, and truthful God says is simply by virtue of having come from him, holy, unerring, and truthful. In addition, the content of God's speech is none other than the gift of the eternal Son who became flesh for our salvation. Revelation is therefore not merely an ever new event that occurs through the work of the Spirit. It is a written canon, abiding, Spirit-breathed, to deposit and constitution for the covenant community unto all generations. And that's why Paul calls it a pattern of sound words. That we are to guard by means of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Of course, this word creates, the Spirit creates through this word, our act of faith in it. But it is primarily and first and foremost, objectively, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Far more than ancient Near Eastern rulers who demanded the death penalty for adding to or subtracting from the canon does this great king, the Lord God Almighty, impose his canon with all seriousness. Secular kings could impose their constitution simply by brute force, vacillating arbitrarily between harsh tyranny and careless abandon. But our king rules us, brothers and sisters, our king rules us in order to save us. He doesn't rule us haphazardly or tyrannically, although he has more power than all of the kings of the earth. When he speaks, life comes to those who are dead. Sins are forgiven and new creation dawns. That's what happens when God speaks. In this way, we see the wide gulf separating Christianity from Islam, for instance, in its claim. And I'll conclude with this comparison and contrast. No Muslim embraces the Quran out of confidence that only there can they find the gracious face of a father who warmly embraces them in his son. Whereas the Quran is a collection of oracles supposedly dictated directly from Allah to Muhammad, the Bible directs us to the testimony of prophets and apostles over many centuries and in the proper voice of each author. Furthermore, whereas Paul reminded Caesar's court that the Events surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ were public knowledge, saying these were not done in a corner as you yourself know. Everything, every miraculous claim in the Quran was done in a corner, a deep, dark corner. Privately, not publicly, not open to investigation or criticism. Three centuries of the greatest intellects in Western culture have subjected the Bible to criticism precisely because it invites it and has turned out to be better for the struggle. Islam means submission based on the mere assertions of its leader. Christianity proclaims trust in Jesus Christ based on historical reports. 
And that same gulf separates Christianity from all of the inward-looking, enthusiastic movements of our age. Christians receive Scripture as inspired and inerrant because it comes from the faithful Father. It speaks of the gracious Son. And it is certified by the Spirit who opens our heart to receive its treasures for everything that we need in this passing evil age. And all other ground is sinking sand. Okay, that was uh, Dr. Michael Horton on Is the Doctrine of Inerrancy Defensible? Good stuff. Great arguments, good points. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you will see two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate, the other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to post office box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. And those of you in the United States, enjoy your holiday 4th of July weekend. Bye-bye.